welcome to the Daily Reprieve, where we provide essays, speaker meetings, workshops, and conferences in podcast format. We are an ad-free podcast. If you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and drop a dollar or two into the virtual basket. Please consider donating monthly by clicking the Donate Monthly button. However, one-time donations are always welcome. Just click the Donate Now button. Now, without further ado, this episode of The Daily Reprieve. My name is Tom R. and I am a grateful recovering sexaholic. My sobriety date is February 24th of 2017. My been around date is September of 2000, uh, 2003. I'm very grateful for this program. I'm also grateful for the honor to be able to introduce our speaker today. Um, he is a close friend of mine and someone that I care about deeply. Um, I'm going to start on page 84 of the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. This thought brings us to step 10, which suggests we continue to take personal inventory and continue to set right any new mistakes as we go along. We vigorously commence this way of living as we cleaned up the past. We have entered the world of the spirit. Our next function is to grow in understanding and effectiveness. This is not an overnight matter. It should continue for our lifetime. Continue to watch for selfishness, dishonesty, resentment, and fear. When these crop up, we ask God to at once remove them. We discuss them with someone immediately and make amends quickly if we have harmed anyone. Then we resolutely turn our thoughts to someone we can help. Love and tolerance of others is our code. So our speaker today is Will in, And for me... He is the epitome of this paragraph. He's the one that when I think of who lives by this paragraph, he's the first one that comes to mind to me. Um, I know uh, I talk to Will a lot throughout almost every week of the year. And when we discuss things, um, he's always bringing to me that he's he's has an issue or something's going on in his life. He's talked to his higher power. He's talking to me. He's talked to his sponsor. He um, has also you know, many times told me about how he's made amends. And and for somebody who, who I look at as being a, a, a real sexaholic, um, he's the person that, that basically lives as part of my life. Some of you might question, why did I say the word real sexaholic? Well, for me, um, I needed to learn that I had a disease of sexaholism. I had to learn that, that that's what I have and that and that the thing, um, and to describe to me what that was, I looked to the definition that Dr. Silkworth gave us in the big book. So if you look at, at the doctor's opinion, Dr. Silkworth tells us that I'm a person, and I know that Will has many, many times told me that he is this type of person, that is, that whenever I'm, I'm out in the world, I am restless, irritable, and discontent. And I cannot get out of that position unless I reach for the ease and comfort of something out there. When it, before I came into this program, it was always lust. But now I can reach for the ease and comfort that this program provides, and that is Will, what Will shows to me often. So I have a short story just to tell about um, something that Will and I encountered one time. So I was, I was driving to work. Will calls me, and, and he tells me, Tom, I am a horrible father. And I, I said, I don't think you're a horrible father. What you know? What what happened today? He said, uh, you know, it's it's 40 degrees out today, and my daughter didn't want to wear pants. She wanted to wear shorts, and she didn't want to wear a jacket. 
And we fought over it for five, ten minutes. And finally, I said, fine, just go the way you want to go. And, and he's calling me because he is upset about the fact that he's just allowed somebody who he loves. I know he loves her. I know he cares about her. He just let her go to school in 40-degree weather because his own selfish and self-centeredness, his own stubbornness, his own restless, irritable, and discontentedness got in the way of him being able to just simply love his daughter. And he was calling me saying, how do I, how do I fix this? How do I fix this? And I said, well, again, you're not a bad father. I, I don't know what else you could have done, but how about this? Why don't you take a jacket to the school so if she needs it, she has it. So you've done what you could in this, in this particular instance. But again, what he's shown me is, I know he had already talked to his higher power. He mentioned that in the call. He calls me to talk to about, talk about the, about the issue that's going on with him, with this restless, irritable, and discontentedness. And finally, I know he works with his sponsors on a regular basis. I don't know if he had to go make amends with his daughter or not later that day. Frankly, it's been many years since we had this conversation. Uh, I can't, I simply just can't remember. But I know what he showed to me that day is that this program works. Because what Will didn't need to do is he didn't need to go look to lust to solve any of his problems that day. He looked to this program. He looked to these steps. He looked to work these steps in his life so that he could stay sober that day. I'm going to finish with uh, page 85 of the big book. It is easy to lit up on the spiritual program of action and rest on our laurels. We're headed for trouble if we do. For sex, for sexaholism, lust is a subtle foe. We're not cured of sexaholism. What we really have is a daily reprieve contingent on the maintenance of our spiritual condition. Every day is a day when we must carry the vision of God's will into our, all of our activities. How can I best serve thee? Thy will, not mine, be done. These are thoughts which must go with us constantly. We can exercise our willpower along this line all we wish. It is the proper use of the will, or today, will, in getting through life. And with that, I'd like to interest Will in as our speaker. better yeah, right there you guys hear me okay yeah thanks Tom hi my name is Will I'm a grateful recovering sexaholic and I've been sexually sober since 3511 I'm from San Antonio and my home group is De Zavala I'd like to start by saying that I don't really have the words to properly describe to you the depth of my gratitude from a higher power this program my fellows. True story, 20 years ago this September, I walked through those doors right back there. I had just finished getting married. <laughs> and this is where we had our reception. And when I walked in, the, the DJ, whatever you want to call it, said, you know, I'd like to introduce Mr. and Mrs. and then my wife's first name and last name. <laughs> and I, I think the fact that I'm up here, I, I, there's probably some hidden meaning I hadn't figured out yet. Um, or my higher power has a sense of humor. I haven't figured it out yet, but uh, it's the last time I was up here. Pretty interesting. Um, my first um, recollection of anything remotely sexual in nature 
uh, was when I was a very young person, probably around six years old, I snuck into my parents' room, and while my mom was sleeping, I took out her bra, and I quietly closed the door, and I put the bra, and I walked around with it and laid on the couch with it on. And I remember she came storming out of her room, and she caught me with it on, and she absolutely destroyed me with her words. She just went off. I don't know what she said. I mean, that was so long ago. But I just remember the tone and how shameful I felt afterwards. And she went back to her room and slammed the door, and we never talked about it again. And I remember from that moment on, I felt like there was no way I could bring up anything like that to my mom ever again. And so it went right down inside of me. As I grew up, my mom was diagnosed with a terrible, fatal disease. And at the same time, uh, my, sis, my older sister started rebelling, and, and her fights with my dad got so intense that often the, the police would come to our house because our neighbors would call and think there was something very terrible going on inside of our house. And then my, my dad was either fighting with my sister, my mom was really sick, he was at work, and I was at home. And I didn't know how to handle all that stress. And so I jumped into fantasy, you know, at first comic books, fantasy books, video games. And then that morphed into the Sears catalog, for those of you who know that. Um, swimsuit issues. And then adult magazines. And this just was a progression. You know, and then when I found masturbation and the advent of the Internet, everything was multiplied by a thousand. And I just retreated inside of myself. And any stress that I had, I didn't know any other way to, co to cover that, any other way to handle it other than to cover it with compulsive fantasy and checking out. You know, that, that was my only answer to life. And I thought getting married 20 years ago would, would fix that. And it did. It did for a little while. Two months. And then a few, year a few years later, I was acting out with others, right? Every line I ever set for myself, every single line I ever set, I crossed. There was no stop. You know, I would do this one more time. This one thing is going to fix all of it. And I could never fill that God-shaped hole inside of me with all those externals. It just wasn't working. And I didn't know that at the time. You know, I thought I was a good guy. You know, I'd, I'd hold the door for you so you would say thank you to me, right? I'd let you in in the traffic lane so you would wave to me. Help myself feel better for all the things that I was doing. You know, self-will run riot, no moral compass. I didn't know how to do any of those things. I'd finally got caught enough, and I got kicked out of the house. I'd never been kicked out of the house before. I finally got caught the last time, and, you know, and, and, and being a good sex sexaholic, I was just trying to figure out ways I can get back to the house. Right? I was kicking out, I was kicked out, I was living with my dad, and living with my dad was terrible. You know, my wife had mentioned while she was yelling at me, throwing my stuff out the door, that I had a problem. Okay, I'm, I'm, I'm listening, right? I picked up that she thinks I have a problem, so if I can find some way to address that problem, then I can check the box and get back in the house. Makes perfect sense. So I'm looking to see what I'm going to do, and this thing about Sexaholics Anonymous comes up on my, on my phone, or my, excuse me, the internet, and I make a phone call, and I find out where the meeting's at, and I get set up to go to a meeting. And believe it or not, this is the hat I wore to that meeting. I still have it, and this is how I wore it. 
I wore it as low as I could over my head, like this, really low. For those of you St. Louis folks, it's a Cardinals hat. Um, and I went to that meeting, right, as low as I could get it, and I walked in, and it was a Saturday meeting, and so the Saturday meeting uh, uh, format is it goes around and everybody shares, right, and it comes up to my share. And this is Texas, so this is what I said. All y'all, all y'all efforts are crazy. That's exactly what I said. All y'all efforts are crazy. I don't need to be here. I don't belong here. This is not where I need to be. I just need to get back into the house. That's it. It's the only reason why I'm here. And I'm sure some of you have been to a meeting where some of that has happened, and, you know, those old folks who have been to several meetings, you know, they're doing this. Uh, yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. Yeah, we get it, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, what's crazy, after the meeting, after the meeting, someone came up to me, the same guy I had just cussed out, came up to me and said, hey, we're all going to breakfast after the meeting. You want to come? I'm like, what, is, what are you doing? And what's even crazier is I said, yes, I will go. I will go. I'm living with my dad. I got nothing to do, right? I'll go to this meeting. And he, here's, here's God doing for me what I can't do for myself. I went to that meeting or that breakfast afterwards, and I'm sitting there, and these people are together, and they're smiling, and they're laughing, and they're talking. And what dawned on me, and there was no denying this, even though I had cussed everybody out in that meeting, there was no denying that the things they were saying in that meeting was the stuff that was bouncing around in my head. Period. And the things that were happening in that meeting, in the breakfast afterwards, that fellowship, I had never once in my life, maybe when I was a really small kid, experienced a group of people or been to a place or around anyone where my insides was matching the outsides of someone else. I'd f and I could leave there and never come back. And I could never, ever deny that I was alone. I couldn't do it anymore, that I was unique. Because here was a group of people who thought like me, talked like me, sitting there laughing and smiling. And so I said, you know what, maybe there's something here. Maybe I should give it a shot. So I started working my program of SA. <laughs> started working my program, right? So I started working my program. And believe it or not, I couldn't stay sober. No surprise. And it was my sponsor's fault, obviously. So I got a new sponsor. I got a new sponsor. And I, I think I racked up about, I don't know, four or five months of sobriety at the time. And it, it came to the last time I acted out. And it was terrible. It was terrible. My sponsor and I had an had a understanding that before I acted out, I would call him. I had this little card. It had some instructions on it. It was in my wallet. I could just get it out and read it. And it was a prayer and a phone number and some other things. And I didn't do any of that, right? I didn't do it. And, and, and after it was over, I think the literature talks about it better than I can. It talks about incomprehensible demoralization. And that's what I felt. And I was so discouraged. And I went home and I scrubbed myself bloody in the shower and I thought, contemplated taking my own life afterwards. I didn't know what to do. Um, on a whim, I decided to call my sponsor. He works a lot and I just assumed I'd leave a message and try to figure it out from there. But guess what? He answered. <laughs> and uh, we set a meeting. So we were going to meet the next day. You know, it's funny, I can't, I can't remember what I had for breakfast yesterday, but I can remember some of these incidences so clearly, so clearly. 
And I remember walking into this restaurant where we were meeting, where we were sitting, and, and, and I sit down, and I tell him that I had just acted out. And I'm a mess, right? I'm crying. I'm shaking. This is a horrible, horrible experience. And I'm thinking that my sponsor is going to console me, right? But I haven't told you this. My sponsor's mean. He is absolutely mean, and he did none of that. He was so angry. His face was red. He was jumping out of his skin, and he said, what the hell are we doing here? What? Do you not just see how sad I am and how terrible this is? What the hell are we doing here, he said. And I, I didn't have any answer. He says, do you want this or not? Quit wasting my time, he said. Hmm. That's new. And so we talked a little bit more and I told him, I don't want to die. I don't want to die because I had those thoughts and I was either going to die a spiritual death or a physical death and both of them are pretty terrible and I didn't want to die. So he said, then let's get to work. And I said, okay. And that's what we did. We got to work. All right. So how did I get sober in recovery? I had to work the program of Sexaholics Anonymous, number one. But the first thing I realized is that I had to do it for myself, right? I walked into the meeting the first time wanting, wanting to get back into the house, right? And there was, a, there was a point there where I needed to be a good husband. I really wanted to be a good husband or a good father, good friend, good member. Come to the meeting, say the right things, memorize the prayers, right? What I didn't realize that when I did those things, when I said I needed to be a good father, a good friend, or a good good husband, when my wife and I would fight, eventually I'd get to the point where like, why am I even doing this? We're just fighting. There's no point. You know, my kids don't, they're not robots, right? You heard of my daughter's fighting me, you know, I just sent her to school and whatever. They're not doing what I want them to do. What's the point of getting sober? So I had to learn that I had to do it for myself. That's number one. Because if I didn't, I'd be back to that space I was before where I didn't want to be around. Second, I had to accept my own powerlessness. And I got a really good lesson in powerlessness, which was my first spiritual experience about a month later after I had that discussion with my sponsor, and that was the birth of my son. So we're at the birth, and we're at the hospital, I'm there with my wife, and my son is born, and it's a beautiful moment. He comes out, I get to cut the umbilical cord, I love on him, I name him. It's wonderful. And so they do whatever they do in the hospitals, and they take the, the baby to wherever they take him to, and then we, we transition over to the recovery room, and we're all excited, and it's a lot of fun, and it's cool. And an hour goes by, and two hours go by, three hours, and my son still hasn't come back. And I'm sitting on this recovery, I don't know, this, this couch, and my wife is in the bed, and and a nurse comes, and I don't even see her. She's silhouetted in the doorway, and she says, Your son has stopped breathing, and he has been taken to the NICU. And a doctor will be by later to tell you what's going on. And I remember slinking over. Like, we're exhausted. It's like 4 or 5 in the morning. We've been up for all day, and I remember slinking over in the couch, and this ringing in my ear, just this high-pitched ringing, and I was so full of fear at that time that I didn't know what to do. And in my mind, I see is that I had two options, right? I could go drown this out with mindless fantasy like I used to do my whole life when anything like this ever happened, or I could really try 
this surrender thing and really admit my powerlessness and really abandon myself to my higher power because I had no choice. There was nothing I could do. Every alarm that was going off in this place was my son dying. And so I surrendered. And I still get chills when I tell this story because I have them right now and I got this feeling from the top of my head down to my toes and in a voice as loud as you hear me now, I heard, Will, you have met your son. You have named your son. You have loved your son. And no one or anything can take that away from you. And that's what I heard. And in that moment, I felt this just great universe hug, right? Just something that wasn't of me, something I couldn't manufacture that came out of nowhere. And of course, it didn't take away all the pain and the fear and the hardship that was happening at the time. But at that moment, it was like the calm storm, the eye of the hurricane, whatever you want to call it. And God was faithful. He was faithful. And so I had to accept my own powerlessness The next thing that had to happen is that everything had to change. (laughs) I mentioned my sponsor was mean. And so one of the things he had me do was go to 90 meetings meetings in 90 days. And we didn't have a whole lot of meetings in Sexaholics Anonymous at the time, so I I would substitute Alcoholics Anonymous meetings. And it was early sobriety, so my, my... I was either looking at the ground or I was looking at, looking at the sky, right? I was in the meetings, in these AA meetings. And I would read, I would read the slogans. And one of the slogans says this. The only thing that has to change is everything. Cute, right? That's really cute. Hey, it's kind of cute. Yeah, you think about, oh, yeah, it's really cool to say. I can say it in a meeting. It's so cool, right? But that's the truth. And that's what really had to happen. Everything absolutely had to change. And when, Mark, when my sponsor said, hey, let's get to work, that's what he meant. And so when we got to work, we looked at everything. How did you dress? Why did you do that? What music did you listen to? What did you read? What movies do you go to? Do you, wear, do you wear cologne? How do you wear your hair? How do you interact with people at work? How do you interact with people at home? How do you talk to your wife? Everything. Everything. Absolutely everything. I don't want to underscore that. Did I say everything? Everything had to change. And we went to work. I remember complaining on his back porch one day. I did that a lot. That's probably why he was so mean to me. I was complaining about, man, my life is really going to be boring. You mean, I, you mean I can't read that and I can't listen to that and I can't go there? Nope, nope, nope. Can't do that. Man, this sobriety thing's horrible. <laughs> and, he, and he told me this, and I remember this story. I remember where we were sitting, all right, these moments. And he said this. He says, Will, I promise you, and he didn't make a lot of promises. He says, I promise you that God will give back to you these things that you need and that's those things that you don't need, he won't. Okay. And, and the funny thing is, that is exactly what happened. And, and my, my brain, it couldn't comprehend, right, what I really needed. All I had to do was work the steps. I had to do the work. And if I did that, then the promises would be fulfilled. And that's what happened. That's exactly what happened. And here I'm thinking, man, I really, my life would be so much better if I could just play this video game. No, man, that video game didn't mean anything. It was just a way, way for me to waste time, right? And stay out of reality. And if it didn't come back, wow, that's great. My life's pretty good today. So everything thing had to change was everything. Finally, this one, I had to work the program on my character defects. Huh? Right? 
That's like kind of duh, yeah, do you don't get that? Do you work the program in your character defects? That's what it says. But I had this block somehow. And being able to work this program on my character defects, I remember that at the time, as things were changing and things were going away and I couldn't do this and you couldn't do that, right? I couldn't numb out the world with all the mindless things I was doing before because, my, number one, my sponsor wouldn't let me. And plus, it, was, it wasn't healthy for me that it became very restless and irritable. What was I going to do? All these, all these uh, exposing the roots of my spiritual emptiness, right? I think about the iceberg, and the reason why I came into the, to the rooms was because of my sexual acting out, and that was all that we could see at the time, right? What I really had to work on were my character defects and my diseased attitudes, and that was below the water that we couldn't see. But I couldn't get there until I got all this other stuff out of the way, until I found some sobriety. And so when I got to that space and it came to this step, 8, 9, and 10, I was like, <laughs> I remember this conversation too. I was, I was in the county jail when I made this phone call. Now, I wasn't in jail. I was working at the jail. But I made the call and so I called my sponsor. I says, man, this, this character defects, man, this thing is just kicking my butt. It's eating my lunch. And he said, Will, you can work the program on your character defects the same way you, we did on your lust. And it was like flashbulbs, like boom, what? And that's what we did. And I can't tell you how much, how I finally realized at that moment, then we started working our character defects and things started changing, that this is a program of comfort. It's not about deprivation, right? Before I came in and when I first started, it was don't do this, don't do that, you can't do this, you can't look at that. That's not a whole lot of fun to live that way. But when I got to this step and I got to 10 and I could work this program under my character defects and I could live life on life's terms, I finally realized that this program is a program of happy, joyous, and free. And for me, peace. That's what I want. And if I can work this program on, on my character defects, I have a faith that works. I have a way to live life on life's terms. And that was incredible. And the last thing I want to talk about is gratitude. The last piece of this puzzle. You know, you guys, I'm sure, have been to meetings where someone says, wow, I'm really grateful to be sexaholic. Or I'm really grateful to be Essanon. And I don't really understand that. I didn't quite understand that at first. I mean, really? Judging, that's, that, guy's full of, that guy's full of it, right? Judging's real high on my list of character defects. But uh, I think what was meant, I think what was meant is that I am grateful to be sexaholic in recovery. A couple years ago, I had a sponsee commit suicide. And it was, very, it, was, it was a terrible tragedy. In no way do I want to minimize what happened. It was terrible for everyone involved, including us in our program. But how we, how we worked through that tragedy is a story for another time, but there is something that I learned during this time. So I got a call from my, who I thought my sponsee was calling me. We were supposed to go to lunch that day, and I'd forgot to invite him to a lunch gathering we had with some other members. And I felt kind of, I was like, well, I forgot to invite him. And so I came back to work, and his phone number came up on my phone, and I answered it. And I said, oh, man, I'm so sorry. I forgot to call you. And it was his wife. And he said, hey, is this Will? And I said, yes. He said, your good friend, he committed suicide last night. I found him in the car in the front yard. And that was, 
That was terrible. And I didn't know what to do. Overcome with a sense of guilt and sadness. And so I called my good friend. And he said, where are you? And I said, I'm at work. He says, I'm either coming to get you or you're coming here right now. And so I drove to his office and he called me back. He says, where are you? I said, I'm in your parking lot. He says, I'm coming down to get you. And he came down to my car and he grabbed me and he brought me up to his office and we sat in his office. And I was crying. And he told me that I was loved, that I was worthy, and most of all, that I was not alone. And there was no way in hell I was going to walk this path all by myself. I went to a meeting that night, shared, crying. Went home that night, called my sponsor asking the rhetorical questions of why me, why do I get someone like me get this program and this other person doesn't? Why why am I seeing the benefits of this and he didn't? No answer to that. Got home and told my wife. We were sitting on the floor. I don't know if you guys do that, but whenever my wife and I have a big conversation, we sit on the floor. Our heads were together. Our foreheads were together. And when the tears were finished... I leaned back and I looked her in the face and I said, you can tell anyone that I'm a sexaholic. You can tell anyone that I'm part of this program because I am proud and honored to be associated with the people I am associated with today. I had never once felt that type of love and an outpouring for me unconditionally than I did in that day. I am proud and honored to be part of this fellowship. And the incongruous truth is that I would have never found you or my higher power without being sexaholic, without enduring all that I have. I can look behind me, I can even reread my first step, and I can see how difficult I made it on others, on the ones that I love the most how checked out and disconnected I was from my higher power. And then I can turn around today and see how good my life is and it just doesn't make sense. It is a miracle. I used to think that the ending of the vision for you would say trudging the road to happy destiny and I really wanted to get somewhere. I wanted to graduate, throw my cap in the air and say that I'm finished. But it doesn't say that. It says trudging the road of happy destiny. And it tells me that the journey is the destination. And I'm humbled and grateful and honored to be on this journey with you. Life is hard. It is. But it's also a grand adventure. And as my sponsor would say, who's more grumpy these days than me? That it's good now, but not as good as it's going to get. Thank you for being here. God bless.
I would like to thank you for listening to this episode of The Daily Reprieve, the best source for experience, strength, and hope for SA members. Please subscribe to this podcast to be alerted of new episodes. Please show your support by donating to The Daily Reprieve by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and choosing either monthly donations or a one-time donation by clicking Donate Now. Thank you for listening, and stay tuned for the next episode of The Daily Reprieve.